Autism, where affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome. I'm Daria Brown. This is Affect Autism, and I am the parent advocate at ICDL, which is the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, the home of DIR Floor Time, which is what we talk about here at Affect Autism. And this week we have with us occupational therapist Stephanie Peters. She is with ICDL Livingston, the Floor Time Therapy Center. And during the COVID, she's been doing a lot of online coaching with parents. And we're here today to discuss the realization phase. And before I get into what that is, welcome, Stephanie. It's nice to have you. Thank you for having me. And Stephanie's been an occupational therapist for almost eight years now. And she's been working at ICDL Livingston for how long now, Stephanie? The past year since we opened last September. Great. So um, let's talk about what this realization phase is. Because um, as a parent myself of an autistic son, I know that this was a big part of my own growth after our son's diagnosis. So um, as the listeners may or may not know, ICDL and Affect Autism host a parent online support group every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern. And it's been, it's really picked up since COVID and parents are coming on and we support each other. We discuss what we're going through, challenges, uh, victories. And um, a lot of the themes that come up are around this realization phase. And what I'll say is, to describe it as an overview, is getting used to the new normal, perhaps, once you have a child uh, who has a disability, uh, a diagnosed disability, having that phase where it takes time to let go of the expectations that you had and to see the child in front of you and really help that child thrive and support that child through any challenges and uh, celebrate with them who they are. And so I notice, and I'm sure you too, Stephanie, um, seeing many clients, parents are at different places when, when it comes to that. And I will say, and I've said before on the podcast many times, it probably took me a good four years to get out of that let's fix the problem phase to this is my beautiful son. I want to love him for who he is and help him thrive. And that's why I went in and um, trained with ICDL. And uh, Stephanie and I both hold our advanced certificates in floor time. So I think uh, I'll let you maybe give a little bit of an overview of how you see the realization phase in some of your clients. I think it's, it's kind of interesting to hear you talk about the realization phase in the context of parents who are new to floor time and how different of a, it's, it's a very big paradigm shift from a lot of the things that we've been taught or told on how to interact and engage with our kiddos. But I'm, as you're talking, I'm finding that it really is um, hitting home with me too, as someone who's been in OT for eight years and um, known about floor time for most of my OT career, 
that the realization phase is kind of always happening. I think that even as someone with a fair amount of experience under my belt, I'm constantly having to stop and check myself and really wonder if I'm, if I'm reacting or if I'm understanding what's, what's the origin of what I'm seeing and if my behavior is because of how I think things should be or if I'm in the moment and responding with what's happening in the, with the kiddo and not more of my own agenda. And I think that's one of the practices that I love about working with ICDL is that we really espouse to have a, a reflective process, reflective practice where we make time to collaborate with our other colleagues to sit down and really think about what's happening. Why is this happening? And what am I bringing to the table with my backpack of past experiences that's influencing my reaction? And is there any wiggle room to tweak it or change it? Or what would happen if I let go of my, my need to have things look a certain way? So even though this comes up a lot with new parents or parents new to floor time, um, I think it's a lifelong journey of just building that self-awareness and comfort with doing things a little different because our kiddos really challenge us to, to empathize and think differently than, than maybe as a neurotypical person I'm, I'm used to living in the world. Yeah, you described it so well. And I think um, one of the big challenges that comes up when we're consulting with parents is that most parents have been told put your child in ABA, which is Applied Behavior Analysis, and it's, it's a very behavioral therapy that has specific goals, and it's very much adult-led, whereas floor time is on the other end of the spectrum, and we're very much client-based. So we are looking at the child, and instead of having the child comply with some goal that we have for them, we are trying to facilitate the developmental process which will help the child intrinsically come to that developmental stage that we're aiming to get to um, in a more natural way that development unfolds and that, and that happens as part of the human process of development versus having some memorized responses or being able to perform and look like um, a neurotypical child. And so that's, that's a big difference. And what we see is a lot of parents coming in saying, um, my child isn't speaking yet. My child isn't toilet trained yet. My child can't feed him or herself. My child doesn't want to eat what I give to them. And all of these things that just sort of flow naturally, and, and maybe not with neurotypical children, <laughs> um, are, are, tend to be delayed or... Uh, look different in neurodiverse children. And so um, some of the parents are sort of stuck in that, I need to get this child ready for school by the time they're five, or I need to make sure they know how to read. And, and this has especially come up because during this COVID period, of course, um, all of the schools and, and other places are trying to do online learning. And a lot of us have found that our autistic children and children with neurodiversities are not really too interested in sitting in front of the computer in an online learning and, and really don't have the focus to learn in the same way that a neurotypical child might. Um, and, and so that, that is the challenge 
that's presented to us and that realization phase is trying to bring the parents on that journey. Um, do you wanna do you wanna speak a little bit to that? <laughs> There's so much to what you just said. Um, what what's coming up for me is is the idea that you can within the DIR floor time framework you can understand the developmental capacities your child is in um, and, and know if they're in symbolic thinking or they're really working on shared problem solving or they're, they're, the crux of where they're at is at that self-regulation phase. And you can know that and support it. Um, and you might even really have a good grasp of their individual differences if they're sitting in front of a screen for learning during distance learning and you understand that maybe the lights have to be dimmer and the ambient noise has to be softer and we can support their individual differences so that they we can hope to make them as successful as possible but it's still not clicking i find that the thinking about the relationship is is often the missing piece and that's where the realization phase kind of comes in where um, especially with distance learning, we have a, an agenda, right? We want our kids to learn and flourish, and we have specific academic goals that we're hoping to achieve, but sometimes it's just not working. It's like um, pulling teeth out where we're just like doing everything we can to get someone, to get our kiddos to be to doing the things that we know will help to accomplish these goals, but it's just not working, right? And so I think that's that's the problem. What do we what do we do about that? Where how can we support the R and the relationship so that we can get that engagement and curiosity and foster that intrinsic motivation to want to learn? That's that's the hard part. We can we know how kids learn and we know how to get them from A to B, but to help our kiddos want to get from A to B and have it be as seamless or natural and fun as possible is really the challenge, right? Yeah, and, and just for listeners that might be new to the podcast, we are talking about DIR floor time, which is the developmental individual differences relationship-based model created originally by Dr. Greenspan and developed by him and his colleagues over the uh, 70s, 80s, 90s. And uh, it really is what Stephanie said, really meeting your child where they're at through this warm, safe, loving relationship, the R, uh, where they're at developmentally, the D, while respecting the I, the individual differences. So um, when um, we're, we're with the child that we have expectations for that maybe are above where they are developmentally and not above in a superior sense, but maybe ahead in time uh, of where they are developmentally, then it's like us going and sitting in a master's program in astrophysics. <laughs> I don't know if you're an astrophysicist, Stephanie, by hobby, but for uh, me, yeah. that would be way above my head. Um, mm -hmm. And and of course, that's that's a trite example. But if we're we're expecting things out of our child because my son is 11 years old, if I expect 11 year old type. Um, capacities from him, but really his developmental age may be more like five or six, then it's going to put a dent in that relationship because we're always here where the child is still here. And that child is always going to feel like I'm not measuring up, I'm not measuring up. And 
it's, it's about looking through a different lens because when we're looking at our child, like they're not measuring up, they're not measuring up that kind of clouds everything that we do and the way we interact with them. Mm -hmm. Especially if, if our kiddos are feeling like they're not measuring up and then we start to see more stress responses like avoiding or running away or getting stuck, I'm using air quotes to, to emphasize stuck, but with more repetitive, self-soothing type of things like YouTube videos or familiar games that are kind of on a loop and recognizing that those are stress responses to something not meeting them where they're at. And then, and then what? And then what do we do? So it's, it becomes a complex circle of a lot of different components that have to align to support each other to continue moving up the developmental ladder. Yeah, so I think, you know, parents always really want this one, two, three instruction guide, which mm -hmm. is really hard to give because every child's different and floor time isn't about instructions. Um, it's more about being in the moment, attuning to your child, where is your child at developmentally, um, emotionally, try and enter their world, uh, respect their interests and, and meet them where they are, and then help them and guide them from there. Um, but I mean, it's, it's hard when the children do have extreme behaviors and then it becomes this power struggle loop, uh, like you were talking about where we're expecting too much, they feel pressured, they get anxious, and they'll go to whatever helps regulate them. And for some kids, uh, what might, might come across as self-destructive behavior, like headbanging or things like that, is not necessarily voluntary. Um, I was horrified one day when I moved to the town that we live in now, and I went into a toy store with my son, and, and the person who worked there said, oh, uh, is your son autistic? I can tell I, I work at the school board with autistic kids. And I said, oh yeah, um, what's it like here? And um, you know, what are the schools like? It, I think it was the beginning of the summer and um, my child was still pre, like preschool age. Oh um, yeah, it's fine. And, and somehow we got talking and she mentioned about an autistic child being suicidal. And right away, my red flags went off and I'm thinking, what is she talking about? And she said, oh, well, he'll just bang his head against the floor over and over. It took four or five of us to hold him down. And I was just like, oh, no, 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 no. That is not a child who is suicidal. That's a child who's overwhelmed. And as Dr. Stuart Shanker, who does the self-reg, talks about, that's a stress response. Uh, it's not a voluntary response. So if our children are really under stress, maybe they will do things that even they don't necessarily want to do. And yes, it probably does hurt them to bang their head. And yes, they'll feel that pain, but they are not in control at that moment because right. they are so dysregulated. Mm -hmm. the, one of the, the biggest parts in my OT journey or my floor time journey with the ongoing realization phase is what to do when I see a stress response. Because I think when, when I started OT, I started working with or in collaboration with ABA programs in the schools that I was at. And I think that 
a message I internalized was, if you see a behavior, a behavior, don't respond to it. Or if you see a behavior, redirect it so that it's back on track. So a lot of my realization phase has been not shutting down when I see a behavior, not turning away when I see a behavior, and instead really leaning into it and taking the time to explore why it's happening, what's going on, and how can I join it, which is like total opposite of anything I'd ever been taught before coming to start my floor time journey. Um, it's always been this, my idea is what we need to be doing. We need to get back to doing my idea because we have to work on these goals. Um, so I have, and I have so many examples of times where I've experienced a stress response and I kind of dig my heels in and, and it's like, nope, we're doing this idea. It's my idea and come back. And if there's a big response of aggression, it's I'm going to wait him out and he's or he or she cannot learn that if you react like that, you can get your way, which is my first response based on my life experience. And with reflective process, pra uh, reflective practice with my colleagues here, I'm able to say, hold on a minute, this doesn't feel right. Watching a kiddo have a total meltdown for 20 minutes while I wait for them to collect themselves so that they learn to be flexible isn't working and it feels awful. It feels awful for me, it feels awful for the parents, it feels awful for this little child who's constantly trying to navigate a very confusing and complicated world. In response, I've learned to honor what the behavior is telling me. And by making that connection, it, it does this magical, wonderful thing where the relationship just blows up and blossoms and becomes this warm, cozy place where now we are, we're talking, we're having a connection, and we're able to problem solve through what's happening based on you saying, oh wait, something's not right. You're telling me something's not right. I shouldn't do this. And all of a sudden, a kiddo will look at me and start nodding their head, and then we can continue moving on. And from that moment of connection, we're able to build the flexibility that I was aiming for in the first place, where if we have trust and I'm understanding why this is so important, then we can start little by little trying to build some, well, what if we do it a little bit this way? And it doesn't become a trigger because I'm an adult who's being trusted to have someone's best interests at heart on an intrinsic level. And then we can have all of those social referencing moments and all of those back and forth to try to create a balance and, and all of a sudden, the, eventually, the things that were the catalyst for these big explosions aren't happening anymore um, because we started at this place of safety. And then we've been allowed to look around from this little bubble that we keep ourselves in to experience the world more fully. It sounds a little abstract, but it's, it's the coolest experience. Yeah, and I mean, that's the one quote that a lot of people take from Dr. Greenspan and this DIR model um, is there's no greater need than to be understood. Right. And I don't think that's isolated to Dr. Greenspan. We hear it, you know, from a lot of different places, especially across developmental psychology. Uh, there really is no better feeling than to be understood. And if we as caregivers can't understand our own children, 
that's really hard for them to feel safe and to trust us and to uh, want to do the things that we want to do with them as well. And, and you made a very important distinction there saying, you know, my ideas and we need to do my goals. And I think that's where some parents have to get over that hurdle of, okay, I'm paying for speech and language therapy. I'm paying for occupational therapy. These are the goals that usually the therapist sits down with the parent and says, what are your goals for your child? I want my child to blah, 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 blah. And I remember thinking like when I, I, was approached by my therapist thinking, well, I don't know. I just, I just want my child to grow and develop, right? Like, what do you mean? And then they would say, well, um, he has challenges with motor planning and sequences. He, sequencing, he has auditory processing issues. He has blah, 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 blah. So, okay. Yeah. Eventually, you know, those will, you know, come along, but I, I didn't like those kinds of goals where child will hold a spoon and eat. Um, child will be toilet trained because all of those kinds of things I just figure will come eventually. That's not the goal for my child. The goal for my child is to be a person who can think, relate and communicate with other people, have that idea of abstract thought and creativity and how is forcing him to hold a spoon. And by the way, he's 11 and he still eats with his fingers. <laughs> um, you know, that, that to me wasn't so important. And I've even read on um, on some of the self-advocates on Twitter post things and, you know, uh, uh, I've seen a few times it mentioned, like, that's why we like to eat with our fingers. Like, we have sensory differences and and who, who are you to tell us that we shouldn't kind of thing. And, of course, there's going to be people out there that say, no, culturally and socially, if I go to a restaurant, it's rude if my child's eating with their fingers. But we're talking in general, every day at home, being with your child, letting them feel safe. Uh, picking your battles, so to speak, what, what is it that you want for your child? Do you want a child who can comply with all the rules and, and do all of the online academic stuff that the school is doing? And some parents will say, yes, that's what I want. And if that's the case, you still have a realization phase because your child isn't there yet. And in order to get there, they will have to progress through the early social emotional capacities and DIR floor time outlines those so nicely of, of these phases of human development that everybody goes through, uh, neurotypical or not. Um, it just looks different in neurodiverse people. And um, I think that that's, that's a, a hard challenge for some parents, but I think what you said is important. You said my instincts, um, it, it didn't feel right to watch the child tantrum and not acknowledge them because then they'll learn. In that moment, they're not learning anything. They're right. just in red brain and it's their stress response. So um, I one thing that I heard you say um, in the last week was that it's nice when we realize that our parenting, or in your case, you're a therapist, instincts align with science. <laughs> and that's what a lot of neuroscience is telling us that, you know, if, if you can see that through a, a scanner, brain scanner, whatever uh, methods they've determined this, that the child is just in fight or flight, then we know that that's not a condition for learning. They cannot learn. They're just in fight or flight. 
And mm -hmm. I think when a lot of people just really sit back and let their instincts take hold, they'll realize what feels right. And what feels right is to have a good relationship with your child and to have fun together. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so powerful and so true. And, and when we're using, when we're avoiding acknowledging a, a negative behavior that we don't want to see, it not only doesn't feel good, it doesn't work because of that exact reason. If our, if we're, and, and as an adult, I can relate to this as well. If I'm in a fight or flight mode, I'm, I'm not receptive or open to any type of instruction or someone telling me to calm down and relax. Um, it just doesn't work. It kind of makes me angrier, actually. But once I have someone who takes a moment to, to slow down and understand me, it diffuses the situation. I have an immediate sense of being supported and being cared for and being safe. And from there, I'm able to use my executive functioning to help collaborate and problem solve. For me, I think as a neurotypical person, I'm able to show my frustration in a very relatable way. I think the challenge that comes with the realization phase is, is how to connect and understand and do all of those same type of empathy components when we're seeing something that is really hard to connect with. And that makes it hard to foster and build a relationship where, like, kid, I'd love, I'd love to connect with you over this YouTube video. I'm just sick of watching YouTube, and I really don't get it, actually. And that, that makes it really challenging. Like, I, can you just calm down so we can work on this obstacle course? Because I don't really feel like watching YouTube, and I don't really get it. And so we have two different agendas, right? Me telling you to calm down. It's not that big of a deal. Let's move forward. And someone else telling me, this is too much. I'm in a stress response. I can't follow anything you're saying, and I need to do something so I can get back to the green zone and feel safe. And like the world is predictable when so much of the time I have a very hard time keeping up with what's going on. So part of my realization phase is, is recognizing when that's happening and being okay with stepping away from my idea so that we can support somebody and getting out of fight or flight mode and not only letting them do that thing that they'll that will be successful in getting them out of fight or flight mode, but finding a way to join in on it. And I think that's really hard for the realization phase is how do I join in with something that doesn't really mean a lot to me? I had a, a parent say to me once, um, oh, I like doing RDI better, um, relational development intervention or something. It, it's another developmental intervention. Um, then floor time, because in floor time, you're supposed to just follow the child's lead. And guess what? I'm just sick of chasing that ball all the time. Right. And, and RDI, uh, although it is developmental, it does have agendas and, and goals that you're, you're completing with your child. And I thought, you know, what a misunderstanding of what it means to follow the child's lead. But let's talk about that for a minute, because um, in a couple of ways. So one way is you mentioned YouTube videos. So I think that's a great example because whether it's YouTube videos or video games or a favorite TV show or whatever it is, a lot of autistic children like screen time. And why is that? Because it's easier, it's predictable. Um, sometimes, you know, looking at people's faces in, in real life, there's so many variables. If they have different sensory 
differences. It, it's just a lot easier to look at a screen and, and um, it's something they enjoy. But I also heard you say, and this was, this was um, something that I learned this week from you was that the child may also be using that to regulate. And that's what I never really thought of before because a lot of parents say, I want to limit my child's screen time, but anytime I try and take the iPad away, they have a meltdown. And even when I say, you know, only 30 minutes and okay, five more minutes. And then still when I take it away, there's a meltdown. So I think there's maybe three topics we could go, three <laughs> topics we could go to from here. So one, what about when, uh, how to recognize as a parent that whatever demands we've put on them is too much and they're using that to regulate. And then we could go into cognitive load. <laughs> and then another path is my child plays too much. Um, I'm going to let them have this much time and then we have to take it away and maybe using some parents even using a punishment reward like if if you do this then you get x minutes with your ipad and if you're good like it's essentially saying if you're a good boy you get to play with your ipad if you're bad i take it away from you kind of thing um and then what was the third thing i was going to say <laughs> something something oh about following the lead so then joining them in that activity what what in the world does that look like? And how is that floor time, Stephanie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you have another in. five hours for your Yeah, podcast. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I always think of the quest for safety, Dr. Forges's work, um, where, where that's kind of the foundation influencing all of our behaviors. We, we want to feel safe. And if we don't feel safe, nothing else really functional or productive is going to come. I don't want my kiddos to be watching YouTube all the time. That's not my goal for them. And my goal for my kiddos is not to let them have their way all the time. Um, it, it might look the same, but the rationale behind it is, is very different. I think that's another hiccup that happens a lot in the realization phase is it looks like you're just letting them have their way. My rationale for letting someone go watch YouTube is that I'm a recognizing that it's probably a, a sign that they're they have no energy left and they need a break, or that something has been too hard and I've maxed out their cognitive load, which is kind of the same thing, um, or we've kind of went way beyond the point of max out our cognitive load and we're feeling really stressed and we need to go back to doing something really relaxing and calming and predictable like any adult would do at the end of a long work day or at the end of a long week we want our downtime and our alone time and sometimes it's going to look the same every day because we like the things that we like um the the challenge is is joining in on that and and doing your detective work to figure out what, what about that is so funny or fun or relaxing for them. So this week I, I worked with a kiddo who loves YouTube videos. And I noticed that the YouTube videos he watched had a, a common theme in, in two videos where an animal or person sat on a chair and it broke and they fell. And I noticed his face light up 
um, in that moment. And I realized that's what he thought was funny about it. And he doesn't have a, a terrible amount of language to use to be able to tell me that. But because I was present and I joined in with him, that was something I picked up on and we were able to practice that. And all of a sudden, we're able to practice that throughout the session when we're not doing the YouTube video and we're expanding um, that theme. So that's, I think- So, so what do you mean by practice that? Well, well, first in the, so while we're watching YouTube, I have one of the parents in and we're really leaning into the YouTube experience. We're like, we're ooing and eyeing at all the cool things that we're seeing on the screen. We're so into the songs. We're sharing that joy of this is awesome and this is fun and we're together. And I love that we're sharing this experience together. We also know that this kiddo in particular really loves deep pressure. So while they're watching the YouTube videos, we're doing lots of joint compressions and squishes and squeezes. And then we'll take a second and pause and hold out our hands to see if they want more. And we'll get a hand reached over for more squishes. And then all of a sudden we see this ooey gooey posture relaxation. We've really capitalized all of the benefits that we're getting out of this YouTube video where all of a sudden, it's not just I'm alone in my world and nothing else exists, but I'm enjoying this thing that's pleasurable to me and I have mom right next to me who's sharing it with me. And from that connection and that sense of engagement and that sense of trust where we're not gonna turn it off, we're not going to try and change it, we're not gonna try to pause it, we're not going to, to prevent you from filling your body up with feeling safe and relaxed then we can pick up on those things that that kiddo thought was funny and and while it happens on the screen we're acting it out next to him and all of a sudden we get this like little curious smile of i saw what you did that was really funny once we notice that we've really relaxed with the youtube videos um, or we're kind of getting antsy, like we don't know what to do next. A lot of our kiddos have a hard time coming up with an idea of what to do next, which is why sometimes we see, well, I don't know what to do next, I'll just keep doing this. Um, we can start enticing away, I really wanna play with you, come play with me. And we have this history of spending 10 minutes, 15 minutes building the relationship and the connection. So when it's time to entice away, we can often be successful or, even better, we can, I heard yesterday, no play, which is fantastic because that's telling me in words, not a meltdown, exactly what he wants, right? That's never something that was verbalized before. Um, and now throughout, while we're playing, sometimes we'll fall down and crash on a mat and it's really funny and silly. So we've expanded upon something that initially was only present in this YouTube world, but now we've made it into a real life experience where we can ask for it and crash down together and get all of that sensory input. So I see it as a way to connect, feel safe, and then the, the ability to expand is really limitless depending upon how creative you are and, um, and the people you can ask for help. And it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, um, I mean, I can relate to that because my son just laughs his head off at any kind of slapstick um, since he was so young, um, anything he sees, so we can then enact that in real life. And, um, it just so happens that Dada is quite clumsy. So <laughs> a lot of times he walks around the house, he whacks his foot into something, he's like, ow! And right away my son bursts out laughing and it's like, 
it's not funny that Dada got hurt, but it is funny. So we made a game of it at bedtime. Um, Dada says goodnight and then walks away, but it's dark and he can't see. And we say, oh, oh, Dada, be careful, be careful. And then Dada's like, ow, oh, and then of course he laughs his head off. Um, maybe that's not the best thing to do at bedtime when we're trying to settle because <laughs> it gets him going. But, but just um, the example is like when you, when you saw that reaction of the child when they watched that funny part, then taking that into real life and making it into an interaction. And I think um, the main point that you're trying to get across is that if we don't get in, and uh, Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who's a developmental psychologist that I, I love and I've taken a bunch of his courses, he always says, collect before you direct. And mm -hmm. I think other people say similar type phrases, but if you don't get in there and form that connection with the child first and get that gleam in the eye, as Dr. Greenspan called it, then why would they even want to play with you or crash you a mat when they're just looking at this? But when you collect first and then, uh, and then uh, I don't want to say collect for you direct. He, he might be talking about other things. Like if you're trying to get your child to put on their shoes and stuff, you want to say, Oh, what are you doing? Great. Oh, it's time to go now. And then direct them. Cause he's, he's not talking about um, he's talking about neurotypical children typically, but um, in our case, getting that connection first before we can get, the child's engagement and then getting into some kind of back and forth interactions, which is what's going to get the social brain um, online and really, really um, helping fuel that development where the child can communicate what's happening inside of them and can express their ideas with us. And, um, you know, I, I like how, how you've said before too, that we want to, um, try and stop that idea of if we do start enacting the crashing into the mat, then um, instead we don't want to then just keep doing it over and over. We still keep wanting to look to the child for their idea and just being more like a supporting actor in that movie that they are directing. So following their lead is like finding that emotional gleam in their eye that whatever brings them that gleam in their eye and then being a supporting role in that idea. Uh, facilitating playful interactions back and forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my boss says that all the time. It's such a great way of um, thinking about how do I, how do I follow their lead? And it's not I do whatever they want, but I start with understanding why or why do they want to do what they're doing, and how can I expand on it, and how can I make it rich with my affect in the relationship, help support making new ideas to expand this one idea. And then all of a sudden we're playing and we're not stuck in front of a YouTube video for the whole session. Um, it's the relationship. It's so powerful when you, when you approach it like that. Um, one of the other things my boss will tell me is like, so what? So what if the obstacle course has to be the same every time? Like, well, he has to learn to be flexible and to change things up and to do it differently. But like, so what? We can do that in so many different ways. And if it's gonna result in a huge meltdown when you try to change it, find a different way of doing it. Lean into it has to be this way, connect over it. And once you have that relationship, then you can little by little try to shift it. So what if your kiddo loves YouTube or wants to eat with their hands? Yes, ultimately we'd love them to be able to do it differently, but, but so what? Have you tried to lean into it? What happens when you've joined them in with it? What happens to the relationship? What happened? What do you notice? 
Do you notice that their body relaxes? Do you notice that they're able to let you in? Do you notice that they trust you a little bit more? And once you have that connection and you have that mutual respect, then maybe something else will come of it. But I think we get really focused on things having to look a certain way when we don't really understand why they need it that way. We expect our kiddos to understand why we want it a certain way without offering that same courtesy back. Yeah, I think that's the key point. Um, so if we try and summarize for parents everything we've <laughs> talked about today, I mean, it's really hard because it's it's not something that is really an, an instructional piece you can give to parents and that they can go do. You sort of have to figure it out for yourself with your own child. But um, I'd say the key is relationship, like you mentioned, just always being there and really seeing what, who your child is and what they're doing in front of you and really accepting them, accepting exactly what's in front of you. If what's in front of you is um, a child who is doing repetitive, uh, what, what people call stim behaviors, and they are stressed when you come in the room because you're making demands on them, recognize that first. That's the first step. Recognize when my child, when I come to my child to ask something, I get a stress response. Maybe that's because I've put a lot of demands on them. So take those demands back. Try and just see your child for who they are. What are they doing? Join in with them. Try and get a fun interaction going where you're doing something that they like. And if they want to do it the same way every time, that's okay. Because eventually you'll change one little thing. And then that one little thing will develop into something else and you'll be surprised when they start coming up with different ideas of ways to do things. And they'll go through repetitive phases where they need to do something over and over again. And then boom, all of a sudden, this happened numerous times with my son. All of a sudden he's not doing that anymore. He's doing something else. There must've been a purpose for what my child was doing. There's a reason why they're doing it. Always accepting that there's a reason and looking for the why behind their behavior. But what um, just, one last point about, and this, this is an impossible question to answer, but what about the parents that say, all of that's nice, but they need to do this? Um, mm -hmm. how, how, do I, you, how do you answer that as a therapist uh, when you know that the child has to go through these developmental capacities before that goal can be met? And we don't know how long it's going to take because every child takes a different amount of time to develop. <laughs> I, I would encourage them to reach out to the ICDL um, Center for Parent Coaching because it's so hard to do this stuff alone. Even as an adult with experience who's taken the courses and has who has friends that know the model and we can talk about it, the support is so important because every situation really benefits from fleshing it out and having a different perspective and challenging those beliefs that you've, you've fostered and, and, and have been told are universally true and relevant. Um, our goals for your kiddos are, are to achieve all of those important milestones. We see it through this lens where it's built on developmental achievements where we kind of start with this one thing and then through a dynamic process that focuses on a rich relationship and respecting the things that are different about others will get there. But it, it is really hard to do alone. Um, I benefit from reflective practice. 
call it process, reflective practice, it's a process. Um, and I think anyone new to the model would as well. Yeah, and I mean, I can also just say, um, you know, there's lots of resources online at icbl.com slash parents. Look at my website, affectautism.com. Um, there's the parent online support group. If you go under events every week, uh, we meet at one o'clock. You can listen to different podcasts I've done with lots of DIR expert training leaders. These people have been clinicians for years and seen children make this developmental progress. I've seen it in my own son. Um, feel free to ask questions, comment at the blog post at affectautism.com, look under realization phase, and I'll put links there to ICDL Livingston, uh, where you can apply for, actually, they, they have complimentary sessions, so if it's something you're not sure about, you can do an, an initial consultation at no charge and see if it's something that resonates with you, and uh, and it's, it's very different than uh, 40 hours a week intensive therapy. It's more checking in once a week or so and, and figuring out where your child's at developmentally, doing that sensory processing profile, um, starting from the beginning and really going through and working through those developmental capacities in a way that works with your child and with the caregiver as well. <laughs> and and um, we've talked about a lot of this in other podcasts. I'll put links to all of those at the blog post. So I hope you'll check it out. And Stephanie, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time today. And uh, hopefully people found it very helpful and will give us some feedback or questions if they have any. Perfect. Thank you so much for, for having me today. This is super exciting and very fun. Thank you, Stephanie. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.